Some of you have heard me tell this story during our meet and greets, but it was April 2nd, 2019. Catherine and I had prayed for many, many years for a fourth child, and it was long past the time that we had expected any such good news. And my wife texted me a picture of a positive pregnancy test. And I've often said I'm really, really glad it wasn't April 1, because I would not have believed her. <laughs> but we knew some of the pain of praying for a fourth child, and waiting and waiting, and not receiving the answer we want. It gives maybe a small glimpse, just a sliver of an understanding of what Elizabeth, in our text today, and so many women over the ages, experience when they just long to have a child, be a mother, and that prayer is not answered, that wish is not desired. And of course, in that age, as in many ages, particularly prior to the Industrial Revolution, not having a child, a child not only was a source of sorrow, but financial insecurity and cultural shame as well. Elizabeth was buried. Her hopes of having a child were long dead and was buried. You might recall the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, they they, their story is told in the beginning of the book of Luke. Zechariah is one of the priests who serves at the temple. They live just outside of Jerusalem in the hill country of Judea. And St. Luke describes them as upright and righteous and people who keep the commands of God. They're good folks. They love the Lord and they walk in his ways. There is no evidence that because of Elizabeth's sorrow and disappointment, they turned away from God and gave up. They are upright and blameless in God's sight. And yet, you can tell that this has deeply affected Elizabeth when God appears to Zechariah and promises that he is going to get, give them a child, even in their old age. Not just any child, but a very special child who will fulfill the prophecy of the Lord and prepare the way for the Messiah. Lo and behold, they conceive. And Elizabeth is pregnant, and she says, The Lord has done this for me in these days. He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I really just have two sections in our message today. The first is to reflect, to ponder how our Lord brings new birth out of shattered dreams. How our Lord brings new birth out of shattered dreams. And then for the second part of this message, I would like us to ponder what it means that our Lord comes to us in the flesh. That the new birth that he brings out of these shattered dreams is our Lord and Savior himself. What does that mean for us? So we've heard Elizabeth's story. Mary's story complements it. In some ways, Elizabeth brings to a head all of the hopes and dreams and concerns and longings of ancient Israel. God's 
promises at work, and yet longing and looking for the Messiah and wondering why they as a nation are still spiritually barren. And then Mary comes along. She is young. Uh, scholars estimate she was probably only about 14 years old, engaged to a man named, named Joseph. She is an upright young lady. She could not possibly be pregnant yet. And in many ways, we can imagine Mary is probably still enjoying the last vestiges of her childhood as she dreams in a way that a 14-year-old girl might about being married and life as a, a Jewish mother and wife in first century Judaism. And the angel's announcement to Mary shatters that picture-perfect dream. Despite all the promises of blessing, despite being told that she is a favored one by God, it means she will be single, unmarried, pregnant at that young age. It means she will have to try to explain to Joseph why exactly she is expecting a child, and Joseph has every right to shun her, do away with her, and if we're being literal about Old Testament, Old Testament instructions, even have her put to death. And of course, we know the story. God intervenes with Joseph as well. But Mary's response, unbeknownst to her, that God is going to speak to Joseph, she says to the angel, may it be to me as you have said. Dear friends, what is your story? The longer we live, the more we can think back to shattered dreams, to times when life as we would have written our story didn't go that way, even close. And there are twists and turns and sorrows and disappointments along the way. And how have we learned to live with those shattered dreams, with those disappointments, with twists and turns that life takes that are not what we would have expected or possibly, perhaps, even desired? Are we able to say with Mary, may it be to me according to your word? Now this isn't a story about how if we just submit to God, everything's going to be hunky-dory and it's going to be okay. Nor is this a sermon telling you that if you just believe God the right way, that he's going to give you everything you ever wanted and make it all turn out okay, at least in this life. This is a much bigger story. This is a story about God's ultimate promise fulfilled. This is a story about the longing of God's people ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, ever since God began to promise that one day he would send a Savior, a Messiah, to right the wrongs of sin, to undo the, the, uh, the, the, the destruction that sin brings to our world and to our lives and to begin to recreate and make things right again. This is the promise we're talking about. These are the shattered dreams that God comes to fulfill. And yet what God did was still beyond our wildest dreams and expectations. 
We've talked all throughout Advent about misplaced expectations. And here, the expectations are exactly right. We hope for, we long for the salvation of God, and yet the way God does it is still above and beyond our wildest dreams. God takes on human flesh, and in doing so, he comes to earth himself. Jesus comes to us when we couldn't go to him. And we have in the church a term for that. It's called the incarnation. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So he has God as his father and Mary as his mother. And God himself is found as an embryo in the womb of Mary. So I'd like to take just a few minutes to talk about how the incarnation, God coming to us, affects us throughout history and today. The first one is a particular point that I think is important. It may not flow with the rest of the points quite as intuitively, but we absolutely can't skip it over. The incarnation, God coming to us, forever fixes in our worldview the importance of human life. God values human life. And there are plenty of reasons throughout Scripture to believe this truth prior to the incarnation. But when God sees fit to enter humanity and to become an embryo in the womb of Mary... A human child who is fully divine and fully human. That should leave no more doubt that God values human life and he values human life from the very beginning. It's a joyful reminder that at this point in the story as we immerse ourselves into the story of Christ's coming, he's already here. I know it's the fourth Sunday of Advent and we're not supposed to celebrate Christmas yet, right? And yet in the story, God is here. Jesus doesn't come to earth on Christmas Eve when he is born. He comes to earth in the miraculous conception. He is already here in the womb of Mary. Friends, Christ has come. Somebody say amen. amen. Christ has come. Even the word that Elizabeth uses to describe John the Baptist in her womb is it's brephos, the baby in my womb. And in biblical Greek, this word brephos is used identically for children still in the womb and children who have been born. In scripture, we see clearly that children in the womb are people. They're humans, valued by God. In fact, God sees fit to become one himself. So in the incarnation, we see that God wonderfully values human life from the very beginning to the very end, and so should we. The second thing we see in the incarnation that, that God comes to us is that when he comes, the Holy Spirit begins to be poured out. 
Now, I don't want to be systematic about this because there are numerous ways that God pours out the Holy Spirit and there are, there are numerous ways to understand the timing of the giving of the Holy Spirit. But let's just look at what happens. God promises to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. And in our, in our text today, we see that he leaps with joy in the presence of Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Our text tells us that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit when she begins to make these amazing confessions that her Lord and Savior is indeed the child inside Mary's womb. Mary, in a moment, will pray that great prayer of joy and, and uh, gratitude that we call the Magnificat. Again, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his ministry, will be filled with the Spirit himself when he is baptized by John. And toward the end of his ministry, he will, he will breathe upon his disciples and say to them, Receive the Holy Spirit as he sends them out. And of course, at Pentecost, God's promises are fulfilled as the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. And therefore, when we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we know that we too have received God's promises as Jesus is given to us and enters into our heart and our lives with all of his promise and all of his salvation. We know that we receive the Spirit as well. So we're talking about the benefits, the gifts of the incarnation when Christ comes to us. One, we know that God values human life. Two, we know that when Christ shows up, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Third, the Spirit leads us to worship in the presence of the Messiah. John the Baptist, in our gospel lesson today, preaches his first sermon. He can't even talk. In fact, he can't even breathe yet. But still, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he preaches his first sermon by leaping in the womb. And in doing so, he does exactly what his life is intended to do. He points to Jesus Christ. Friends, each of us are filled with the Spirit so that we might proclaim the good news of Christ Jesus. Each of us are, are, uh, are filled with the Spirit so that we might be brought into worship. Elizabeth has these amazing proclamations to make. And when you look at the language that, that describes what she does, Elizabeth, in a loud voice, proclaimed or shouted the equivalent of those verbs in Hebrew is only found at a few select times in the Old Testament when the people of God gather around the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? It was the centerpiece in the tabernacle and later, well, the centerpiece in the tabernacle, later the temple, and that was understood in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament as the place where God dwells. So in using this same language, um, Luke is revealing a couple of things. One. Mary is now the place where God dwells. Isn't that cool? After all these years, the place where God dwells is now this 14-year-old young lady who is with child from the Holy Spirit. She is the new Ark of the Covenant. And 
what Elizabeth does is not just casual observation. Oh, wow, that's kind of cool. That's Jesus over there. No. She follows a long-standing tradition of worship, and she intones these, these words of praise and thanksgiving, just as Israel did when they were in the presence of God around the Ark of the Covenant. Elizabeth is worshiping. In a moment, Mary will join in that worship as she, she proclaims her Magnificat. And today, the Holy Spirit gathers us for worship. Where we have entered his family and he has entered us through the waters of baptism, Jesus is proclaimed in the word of God. Now God's word performs the function of the Ark of the Covenant and brings to us Christ himself. Now Jesus is proclaimed and given to us in the bread and the wine and Holy Communion. And just as the Ark of the Covenant held God's presence in the Old Covenant, just as Mary bore the presence of the living Savior, so when we receive the bread and the wine, we receive the living Savior. God still comes to us. Jesus, who in the incarnation becomes flesh, is still giving himself to us in worship. And today, you will have a chance to receive the incarnate Lord Jesus in the bread and the wine. That's good news, isn't it? Finally, in the incarnation, when Jesus comes, we are moved to action. It's impossible to be still. Mary, this is actually quite astounding, Mary, at age 14, pregnant, presumably scared, Scripture doesn't tell us that, but I can't imagine otherwise, when she hears that her cousin Elizabeth is also with child and expecting um, a, a child that will prepare the way for Jesus, what does she do? She gets up and Scripture says, with haste, travels 80 to 100 miles down through Israel, presumably by foot and from all evidence in Scripture, alone to go, excuse me, to go find Elizabeth. When Jesus shows up, we are moved to action. Elizabeth not only proclaims these amazing words of worship, but then she continues to open her home to Mary for the next three months as they both are with child and support one another during that time. Nearly, well, John the Baptist will adopt a difficult life as um, uh, a, 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 a ascetic, out in the uh, ascetic, out in the wilderness, wearing rough clothing, eating a very basic diet, and devoting his life to pre preparing the way for the Lord. Jesus' disciples, most of them, will die a martyr's death, devoting their life to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So today, we ask ourselves, how are we moved to action? Some of you are moved to action serving in children's ministry. Some of you are moved to action as you prepare God's house for us to come on a day like today and receive Holy Communion and, and be ushered into God's presence. Some of you are moved to action as you bake pies that are, 
are sold in the community so that we have a presence here in Tyler. But today I want to invite Laura Lockhart to come forward because one of the amazing ways that God is moving us to action is through our disaster relief ministry. God's doing some amazing things and I want you to hear that directly from Laura. Come on forward with your mic. Um, for this part of the application, I want us to hear what God's doing. Come on up, Laura. Good morning. For those of you that I haven't met, I'm Laura Lockhart. And I'm going to start this by saying I have some brief notes. I have no glasses, so good luck. But anyway, um, I want to talk to you just a minute. Pastor John asked me to come, and we're going to continue, I think, going forward, talking a little bit more about or coming to you and let you know what the disaster response team is doing. But in August of 2016, my husband Steve came in and told me that he needed to go to Baton Rouge. And I'm like, okay, for what? We know no one there. I had no idea that they had had some devastating storms and flooding. And so he told me that he'd heard about this flooding and he needed to go see what he could do. So when he got there, he met with uh, the Trinity Lutheran Church in Baton Rouge. They were also in the middle of building a camp called Camp Restore to house volunteers. So in the beginning, what Steve actually did was help to rebuild that area, but they built a, they had a house they were rebuilding into a volunteer camp. He helped with rebuilding the inside of the house, remodeling, and then they built the, our traveling bunk beds that y'all will hear about. They built a set of beds that would house 50 people so that that camp could open up and be ready for volunteers. Um, I'll never forget because it was while Steve was still in Baton Rouge, he would come back and forth that every time he went, someone else went with him from the Trinity congregation. And it was just like a fire that started burning through their hearts. There's nothing as rewarding as seeing the faces on these people that are in such a critical time, in such a time of disaster. They've lost their, their homes. They may have lost lives. I mean, the community is devastated. And we can go in and help. Just a smile and an encouraging word is helpful. And then when we can come in and do repairs, it is amazing. Um, and it makes us feel so humble to do that. They say thank you, and we say no, thank you for giving us the opportunity. Well, like I said, a fire was burning, and so actually Pastor Hill went to the congregation and got funding approved, and we purchased one small trailer, uh, some basic equipment, and, and things where we could go in and do home repair, we could tear out, and then also do some small tree work. That has since morphed into what our team does now is they are considered a uh, disaster, hang on, get it right, rapid response for, disaster resp for the disaster response team. We're the only team that is designated by LCMS as rapid response. And that is because we are completely self-contained. We've gone from having that one trailer, we now have four trailers. One of those actually has bathroom facilities in it, shower, everything. Um, we have uh, 18 chainsaws, I think we started with two. We have 18 saws and the equipment basically we can go in and rebuild a house. We can gut a house, rebuild it, and take down, I think, any tree that, they have that is out there that needs to come down. Um, so the team has really grown and that is through the help of this congregation, uh, through grants from LCMS and also from a lot of other participants. What we have done since this team started is we have met other people when you go out there, you meet not just the people in the congregation uh, that we're helping, but also you meet a lot of other disaster re relief teams that are there. Our team now has grown, and probably over half of our members 
are actually from other churches, some within Texas, um, some from other states. Uh, we have people that are from Oklahoma, Louisiana, Florida. I may be missing a few. We deploy, they go with us. And so we have a huge team now that is out there um, responding. And like I said, we go first because we are self-contained. We can go in, we take our own water. Uh, we have three or four generators that go with us. And what happens is with these disaster areas, usually you have some folks that come in that want to stay that are long-term. And so they need a place to set up maybe their travel trailer, their motor home. So what we've started doing is we go in and our team, we're blessed with several electricians, and we go in and set up an RV camp at these host churches so that people that are coming and staying long-term can bring their travel trailer in. It also allows us to go in early before other volunteers and actually be able to be there at the very front of the disaster. Um, and what we have recently been asked to do is LCMS, LCMS in St. Louis has asked that we assess and install from seven to nine RV sites. Uh, they'll go in from Sulphur, Louisiana, all the way to Panama City, Florida. And so in January, our team will be headed back out. We were called to go to the storms in Kentucky and Tennessee, and then LCMS said, no, we want them on track. We want these RV sites built so when hurricane season for 2022 starts, that we're ready and they're able to deploy and we can get volunteers in immediately. So that's where we're headed. They've actually approved, I um, believe it was uh, right at $100,000 uh, grant, and it's that with the Southern District that we work with, to put in these RV sites. So it's a lot of money to put up there. Um, and a lot of confidence in the team that we have. I can't tell you how proud of this team I am. It's the greatest group of individuals I've ever known and gotten to work with. Um, in our last deployment in uh, Southeast Louisiana, I uh, got the statistics from Pastor uh, Ed Brazier, who was over that deployment. And he said we helped out 157 homeowners, uh, savings cost estimated at $561,000 for those homeowners by our going in and doing that volunteer work. Um, in addition to that, we helped two LCMS pastors, two of the LCMS schools, and six congregations. Um, 3,254 hours put in in southeast Louisiana, and over 80% of that was put in by people that are Trinity Lutheran volunteers or associated with our team. Um, when I get a call, everybody always asks, the first thing they ask is, is the Texas team coming? Guys, that Texas team is us. That's Trinity Lutheran. We have a lot to be proud of. They, like I said, created a name for themselves. And this picture right here I want to show you, this is five individuals of which I believe two of those are from Trinity Lutheran. The other three are from the other churches that we've met that travel with us. And two of those are ladies. There's a lot to be done on this team. And if you're interested, talk to us. There's a lot of ways to volunteer. Um, it's not just for the guys. The women need, the women, there's a lot to do. There's food to be prepared. There's uh, spiritual needs. There is cleaning. There's, there's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot, we need clerical help both here and on the site. So if you have any interest in going and serving, it's a wonderful ministry team and a great, great group of people. And I will tell you this, we have a lot of fun. So not only are we serving the Lord, but it is a lot of fun. So thank you for letting me come today and Absolutely. speak. Absolutely. Don't leave quite yet. So because Christ has come in the flesh, he empowers and inhabits us so that we might be the hands and feet 
of Jesus, who has come in the flesh. And I asked Laura up here for a couple of reasons. One, Disaster Relief is currently doing a lot of stuff, and it's timely that you hear about them. Two, there are a lot of ways to be involved, as you just heard. I'm someone who should never be given a chainsaw, and yet there are a lot of ways that I could serve. Some of you could be given a chainsaw, and they will train you and help you to do it safely. Um, three, whether it's disaster relief or any of the other ministries here at Trinity or things you do that may not be endorsed by Trinity. You might lead a, a scouts group or coach a youth sports team or uh, you know, every, every one of us who takes care of the older or younger generation as part of our ministry is doing this. Remember that because Christ has come in flesh, he is using your hands and feet and sending you out in action. We're going to pray to conclude the sermon and also pray for our disaster relief team all at the same time. Does that work? Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have come in the flesh. And because you have come, we know that you value life. We know that we have the Holy Spirit. We know that you are present with us as you have drawn us into worship. And we know that as you send us forth, you send us forth with the true presence of Christ Jesus that we might be your hands and feet. We pray for our disaster relief team as they are your hands and feet, demonstrating your love in word and deed throughout this country where, where disaster has struck. We ask that you would bless them and continue to shine the light of Christ through them. And for each and every one of us, send us forth with, in strength, with creative ways to be your hands and feet in this world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.